you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 305 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Spartan mockumentary episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that in the glorious gut, glut, and gut of films parodying 300 back in the day, there was a small independent film released back in March of 2008 which was a mockumentary detailing the five almost brave Spartans charged with guarding a goat path called 305. Yes, that really happened, folks, and it looks terrible. But with that wonderful bit of knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California. Actually, I'm sorry. All the way from smoky California. We'd be our resident Sony employee. That's very insensitive of you, Matthew. I thought it was very insightful of me, (laughs) Tim. Tim. Yes, that is is, uh, an excellent commentary on our current state here in Los Angeles, California. It's not nearly as smoky in my area. I am a good ways south of the actual fires, but it's uh, pretty crazy burning down south and in Northern California. Well, I'm just glad. I am glad, though, that in all seriousness, you are okay. Uh, I know we were talking a little bit here before we started recording about various uh, areas that have been affected by the fire and certain high-profile celebrities. I actually saw a picture uh, just a couple of hours ago. Gerard Butler had taken a selfie in front of his home, and he has his uh, mask. He has he has an air mask and, uh, you know, one of those standard carpenter air filter masks, not like super high-tech. But he has it down around his neck, and he has the camera pointed as a selfie, but, I mean, it's basically just him in front of his house and it's i mean it is literally burned to the ground uh the remnants of what i think was a truck sitting in the garage and uh, you know so yes it's affecting tons and tons of people but i mean um it's kind of interesting because uh, like i know tim and i were talking about this as i just mentioned but i mean it really does humanize these people, I mean, you know, A-list stars are real people too, and they can lose just as much as the average Joe. So, um, it's definitely really helps to kind of, I think, keep it grounded that, uh, everybody's a people, so to speak. So, it, anyway. And it doesn't matter how many houses you have. <laughs> I think we came to that conclusion during our discussion earlier. That's true. Yes, because I took the I took the position. Look, I think it's horrible that anybody loses when anybody loses their home. It doesn't matter. Um, I just, for me, in a more cynical way, it is harder for me to. I, I mean, I guess in just point of fact, relate when yes. So someone like Gerard Butler. Uh, I think Tim, you mentioned that Cher also lost her home. Yeah, I think so. And and. Uh, you know, so yes, this is still their home, right? It's their home. Tim, like, you know, as Tim said, their, their, their photos, their, their computers that have all of their information on it and stuff. All that stuff is gone, right? Sure. A lot of that stuff is replaceable and I'm sure they have insurance, 
but it's gone. And it's just, but for me, it's like I absolutely can, 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 oh, what's the word? Empathize with that. But at the same time, I, it's, it, the cynical side of me says, well, I mean, they still have, you know, two or three other homes, right? Um, it's a lot easier for them to get a hotel room than maybe somebody else. And so, you know, I have to try and, I have to try and balance that. I have to try and balance those two sides. And so thankfully Tim is there to help me do that. But again, I, I think that it's important that we see pictures like Gerard Butler's because again, it just keeps that and it keeps that reality that celebrities, no matter what we think of them, and no matter how famous they are, truly do have real lives that can be just as affected as you and me. So, anyway, how's life for you, other than being safe from the fires, which is <laughs> outstanding news? In choking on the spillover smoke pouring down, uh, doing okay. There, there's a lovely nip in the air, it feels like the holiday season is, in fact, right around the corner, which is always a lovely, lovely time of the year for me. Yes. Now, I know that you enjoy Halloween probably is probably your favoritest holiday. And uh, I, however, for me, yes, this is this is my time. I absolutely love Thanksgiving and Christmas. This is my this is my wheelhouse, baby. I'm all about it. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. We have our uh, we actually just came off of our family reunion, our annual family reunion. So we had a whole lot of fun there. Uh, despite the Rangers, uh, we had uh, Rangers basically running us off. Uh, we we have been we have been chased away from our ancestral land, as it were by dickhead rangers and uh other than that we still made the most of it and it was a lot of fun great family time we'll be looking forward to doing it again next year and now i'm looking forward to kicking off our holiday season which for us will start on the 21st so next wednesday which i guess as you guys listen to this will just be Wednesday, since our shows generally come out on Thursday uh, and sometimes Friday. <laughs> well, Matt, since we're talking about the holidays, have you heard about this Once Upon a Deadpool movie that's coming out on December 12th? No. It is a PG-13 version of Deadpool, tool, uh, Deadpool 2. Uh, <laughs> no, no, Deadpool Tool sounds good if you're going to make it PG-13. <laughs> <laughs> And basically, they went back and reshot all of this footage starring, uh, well, it's with Deadpool, but it also starring, oh shit, what's his name from the the kid from Princess Bride? He's in the, he's in the bed. Fred and, Savage? Yeah, starring Fred Savage in Deadpool is reading him the story of Deadpool 2. Uh, De- God damn, Deadpool 2. <laughs> Deadpool 2. And that's kind of title. like what helps bridge the movie in a way to get rid of some of the more gorier aspects of it, I, I, I suppose. But they're doing it both as a cash grab Wait, and as a... Are they actually... I'm so sorry to interrupt. So... So they're literally going to have Fred Savage kind of reprising his role. So he's going to be sitting in a bed being read to yeah. by Deadpool dressed up as Peter Falk. 
No. Well, I, not that I know of. No, Deadpool is actually looking like Deadpool, but he's wearing a Santa Claus hat. Here, so okay, so from Deadline Hollywood, Once Upon a Deadpool, Ryan Reynolds and Fred Savage on franchises PG-13 Plunge from Deadline.com, written by Jeff Boucher. I'll just read a little bit of this. It's an exclusive for them. All Fox wants for Christmas are 12 more days of Deadpool. That's certainly one valid interpretation of the studio's plan to revamp, rename, and re-release the year's biggest R-rated hit, Deadpool 2. Ugh. Deadpool 2. As a PG-13 film called Once Upon a Deadpool. There's more to it than that, however. Deadline has all the details about the studio's unconventional plan, a plan that may have intriguing relevance when viewed through the prism of the Disney-Fox merger and the future of the Red Hot Deadpool franchise. First, some of these details. Once Upon a Deadpool will have a limited engagement that begins December 12th and concludes on Christmas Eve, positioning it as a box office play aimed at young teens on holiday break from school. The lion's share of Once Upon Deadpool is footage from Deadpool 2... Deadpool 2 that has been edited to meet PG-13 thresholds of violence and language... There's also new footage in the form of a framing sequence that was conceived by Deadpool star Ryan Reynolds and writers Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick. Working with a small film crew, Reynolds and his cohorts filmed all the framing scenes and in a single hectic day of guerrilla-style filmmaking. There's a major charity component to the limited engagement release as well, as Reynolds explained to Deadline that for every ticket sold, $1 will go to the audaciously named Fuck Cancer Campaign, which will temporarily be renamed Fudge Cancer for the purpose of tie-in fundraising effort. It's funny to note that Deadpool is such a native of hard R filmmaking that even its charity partner has an F-bomb name that requires editing to soften it for a PG audience. Reynolds famously championed the idea of a Deadpool movie for a decade and maintained his position that the scabby, subverse superhero from the pages of Marvel Comics could be a commercial winner, but only if it bravely bucked the Hollywood mindset that superhero franchise naturally belong in the PG-13 pack. It basically goes in talking about how this might prove to Disney that PG-13 audiences, that younger audiences will still flock to go see this, even when it's not R-rated, and therefore he might have a place in the MCU universe, I guess with Spider-Man and whenever X-Men go over there or Fantastic Four joins the MCU universe. People are speculating that this might be that case. It's like a, it's like a, 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 a tryout period. Trials for Deadpool to possibly join... Uh, the likes of Spider-Man and Black Widow and everybody else who's going to be a part of the MC universe in five years or however long it'll be. But yeah, uh, do check out this article if you want to read more about it. Once Upon a Deadpool, Ryan Reynolds and Fred Savage on franchises, PG-13 Plunge, written by Jeff Boucher. So you didn't hear about this, Matthew. No, and I, I was with it all the way up until the end of the article. Like, I, um... I don't mind them having fun with it and poking fun at themselves 
for double dipping because that's the kind of self-serving thing that you would expect from a Deadpool movie. And in and of itself, that's okay. What I don't like is the aspect of them doing this as a tryout for a PG-13 version of Deadpool because that will just ruin it. Um, you can put Deadpool into the MCU wherever you want. I think it would be something that's perfect for something like Guardians of the Galaxy. <clears throat> but... Um, you could still insert him in there without him cursing and stuff. I, every, it's not like every other word he says in the R-rated movies is a curse is a curse word. So <clears throat> you can have him do that without making a PG-13 movie. So you can still keep him in the MCU. He can still be profitable in that aspect, and you can still keep making these, you know, stupid money vehicles that are Deadpool movies and the people will show up to them and they'll still make money. This is already a win-win for the mouse house. And I'm worried that if they see this, they'll be like, they won't make two versions of a Deadpool movie. They'll just start making PG 13 Deadpool movies, which will destroy everything. <sighs> anyway, so let's just hope, let's just hope it's them poking fun at the fact that they're double dipping and then, we can just watch our 15 minutes of new footage. And what's interesting here is that it's opening on December 12th, which is the same opening date for Aquaman and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. But also in one of the closing paragraphs here in the article, they do mention that, that Saturday night fever, the movie originally came out in 1977 as an R rated drama, you know, but then a PG version was released in 1979 and added, quote, $8.9 million on top of the film's original haul of $85.2 million, end quote. Stuff like this has happened before, but with Deadpool, I think it's too much of an obvious cash grab that even if the movie was trying to be meta about it, if anything, it would be fitting for a bonus feature on the Blu-ray or, you know, an extra disc on the Blu-ray. Kind of like what they did with Anchorman. Didn't they do, like, two versions of Anchorman? Like, Wake Up, it's called Wake Up Wrong Burgundy, where they used old footage or deleted footage, and they were able to Basically, make Basically, a... they, they, because they let the... Yeah, with that one, though, they used... What happened was, is they because they let them improv so much, and they tried so many ideas, they, they literally had enough um, deleted footage and extra scenes to create a second film and so yes they made another movie out of it yeah anyway <laughs> so we'll see how that goes and uh, and and since we're already in the middle of it should we just continue with the news we should so officially it's the news <laughs> So, where 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 do we want to start, sir? Do we want to start? I, I I assume I'm starting. Sure, go for it. You're choosing. Ooh, I'm choosing. Okay. For the record, we are recording this on the evening of the twelfth, and uh, a belated uh, Happy Veterans Day and Marine Corps birthday to all of those out there to whom it is applicable. 
But uh, I think we're going to uh, save the Stanley news here for just a moment because this way it will allow us to segue easier into what Tim has to talk about because I know Tim has some passings to mention as well. And I'm going to jump in with my HollywoodReporter.com article by way of Scott Roxborough. Why a star is born isn't wowing overseas audiences. That's right, folks. Why aren't foreigners going gaga for A Star is Born? Bradley Cooper's directorial debut, which features Lady Gaga in her first big screen leading role, has wowed U.S. critics and audiences alike, earning some $178 million to date at the domestic box office and topping many award season's best of lists. But internationally, in many countries at least, A Star is Born has failed to ignite. The Warner Brothers release has earned $144 million to date outside of North America, just less than 45% of its total take of $322.8 million, while studio-style releases of this sort typically earn 60% or more of their gross overseas. For uh, comparison, Fox's Bohemian Rhapsody, which tells the story of rock band Queen and its flamboyant frontman Freddie Mercury, has earned $100 million stateside and already grossed more than $185 million outside of North America. Bohemian Rhapsody is in its third week in release, where A Star is Born is already into its sixth week. That's right. Um, but the thing here is, is that, uh, they're not really sure if it is because of the way it's being classified or if it's because of the way that people are simply viewing it. For example, here, um, they, the article goes on to say that uh, certain other international analysts noted that expectations that A Star is Born would play like a musical overseas may have been misplaced. Instead, audiences in many international territories have responded to the feature more as a conventional drama, which would explain its respectable but not extraordinary global box office. It's notable that French audiences, which love a good drama, have embraced A Star is Born. The film has spent six weeks in the top ten and grossed $12.6 million there to date what they are hoping for though is that the oscar buzz will help generate additional interest in the film but tim i am curious what you think if you as a listener would like to check it out we would love for you to do that again hollywoodreporter.com by way of scott roxborough why a star is born isn't wowing overseas audiences i of course uh, only read probably about a third of that article but tim thoughts if any by not wowing overseas audience or audiences like the uk the uk isn't interested in the movie either i guess it does well it says uh 33.1 million gross in the uk 17.1 uh, million in Australia, but Germany, Spain, South Korea, um, is not doing very, very well. well and to give you an idea, to give you an idea, South Korea loves musicals. So, uh, La La Land earned 27 million. Mm-hmm. Greatest Showman earned 10.6. And Star is Born is at 3.3. Right. But it's, it's also not a musical. And it's also a very, depressing movie i shouldn't say it's depressing it's a it's a very heavy drama whereas with both la la land and greatest showman showman there was a lot of fluff to both of those films 
So it's different. To me, A Star is Born is a drama. It's not, it's a drama with music. It's not a musical. So, I mean, I, I can see, totally see why maybe Asian audiences aren't behind the film. For one thing, they like different music. I mean, K-pop, you know, if it was about a K-pop group, it could be a totally different outcome. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's all about how they can relate to these characters. Here in the U.S., we can relate to these characters. We sympathize with these characters because they're familiar to our own heroes within the music industry. And also they Fair are enough. American entertainers, whereas they don't have that over there overseas, especially in South Korea. I don't think they have that same same bond if they remade the film over there and maybe they focused on on k-pop or something like that it would be a huge hit whereas over here it probably wouldn't be a huge hit and you may be onto something there i think that might be what it is i think again because even the article says it's like well some people thought it was going to be a musical and it's playing like a drama and i think i think you're right um I, I'm not really sure. I think this is just kind of one of those things where the, the business it's going to do overseas is going to be based on the bankable aspect of Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. And I think that's what, I think that's what we're seeing. I think that people who aren't interested in dramas aren't going to see it. I think people who, even for the musical aspect, if you think it's going to lean in musically for whatever reason, are going to see it for that, but it's really just playing based on the strength of that, of the, of the leads and probably in the musical department, obviously more and internationally, I think Lady Gaga is probably the bigger name. I don't know. Maybe Bradley Cooper is like super huge somewhere that we don't know about, but, uh, and I think that's really what it boils down to. I, I'm, it's not like, a, it's not your prototypical drama with big time names that everyone everyone around the world knows and will immediately go and see because oh yeah I got to see this movie because Al Pacino or something like that. So I can uh, so that's the, I guess that's where I'm coming from it coming at it from. But I definitely agree with what you're saying there, Tim, and I think the article at least. At least acknowledges that. So awesome. All right. Well, then my last article again, uh, coming to us here from variety.com by way of Brian Lowry. Stan Lee. That's right, folks. Marvel comic book legend dies at 95. Yes. Lee. Uh, Stan Lee, who ushered in a comic book renaissance by co-creating the iconic superheroes Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, and the X-Men, characters who made the leap to film with often spectacular results, died on Monday, his daughter's attorney confirmed to Variety. He was 95. Lee was taken to Cedar Sinai's uh, Cedar Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles on Monday after suffering a medical emergency and was declared dead shortly afterward. Working primarily with artist Jack Kirby, Lee, writing as many as half dozen titles or more a month, transformed Marvel Comics into a powerhouse, featuring socially relevant stories that spoke to young readers in a way the form hadn't previously. The works, largely created during a wildly productive stretch in the early 1960s, beginning with the Fantastic Four, a squabbling and at times reluctant team of superheroes, were part of what came to be known as the Silver Age of Comics. Um... And you know what? I think that, uh, 
this this exceptionally lengthy article, which is very well written, and I highly recommend it, pretty much speaks for itself. I'm just going to stop there. And Tim, you know, impromptu. I know I didn't, I, I didn't know, I, I know you don't. <laughs> I know we didn't talk about this, so I'm sorry to just kind of throw it at you. But are you bummed? I mean, how are you feeling right now with this news? I mean, he was 95, and I know he, within the past year or so, he's been going through a lot of, or dealing with a lot of medical issues, so I was kind of expecting sure. it. He's probably made it a lot longer than he than he should have, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's, I think that's fair, and, and this is one of those things where it's definitely been a long time coming, not because he deserves it or anything in that in that uh, in that vein but exactly as you said he's 95 years old i think everybody wants him to carry on just like everyone has their beloved grandparent or great grandparent if you're fortunate enough to have known yours or still do know yours that you want them to keep going and um and it's kind of like this little ray of sunshine knowing that they're there and yet the reality is not a whole lot of people make it to 95. And I agree that someone who is that prolific and changed the world in, in the ways that he did has lived the life that is full. And it should, I mean, it should be noted that this, this version of Stan Lee that we've gotten over the last, you know, 20 years is not, is not undeserved, but it is the last incarnation. And I think it's, it's the greatest incarnation of Stan Lee. But I think that anyone who really studies Stan Lee will find that he made mistakes while he was at Marvel. And he definitely did not always do right by his co-creators and other staff. And so I think it's great that, that despite those failings, I think it's great that despite those failings, he was able to still bounce back and recover from that and become the ambassador of the goodwill ambassador, if you will, for all of comics, not just the MCU and not just Marvel on the whole, because all, all he ever did with these people is just continue to encourage the love of all things comic book. And that does spill over to DC. It does spill over to Dark Horse. It does spill over to Image. It does spill over to insert your favorite comic company publisher here. And that is the beauty, I think, the ultimate final beauty of Stan Lee. And I think it's probably the greatest reason he's going to be missed. All his Marvel cameos aside. And I think, I think the real sad day is probably about two or three years from now when we get the final Stanley cameo. Because he was doing, he was usually doing like five or six cameos a year, uh, to, to do all of the, to, to go through all of the films. So I know that he had, at, I, I remember reading somewhere a few months ago, I think he had like four of them in the bank. So we should probably still see, I would say at least two more, if not three, before they are finally done. And I think that one's going to be the real sad one because it will be the finality of it 
hitting everyone in the nostalgia feels for sure because it's one thing to remember him fondly and it's one thing to honor his passing now but it's going to be another thing entirely when it's like wow this is really it so uh, r.i.p stan wherever you are or wherever you're not godspeed and good luck sir well, Stan Lee wasn't the only old conjurer to kick the bucket at the age of... 90 plus. 90 plus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> From Variety.com, Raymond Chow, giant of Hong Kong film... In- film in- Oh my God, I'm... Bleah. Dead to I know, it was Dead catchy. Tool. It Deadpool was catchy. Tool. Did you see me? I was fucking up too. <laughs> oh man. Raymond Chow, giant of Hong Kong film industry, dies at 91. Written by Patrick... Frater and Vivian Chow, and it says this, Raymond Chow, the co-founder of Hong Kong's Golden Harvest that launched the careers of Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan died on Friday. He was 91. Chow was an instrumental figure in building the golden era of the Hong Kong film industry, working under Run Run Shaw at Shaw Brothers Studio and co-founding Golden Harvest in 1970. He was also among the first to bring Hong Kong films to global attention through international partnerships and distribution. Born in Hong Kong in 1927, Chow studied journalism at St. John's University in Shanghai and began working as a reporter at the Hong Kong Tiger Standard upon returning to the city in 1949. He had a brief stint with Voice of America before leaving journalism for filmmaking when he was required by Shaw Brothers Studio in 1958, joining the company as the publicity chief and later became head of the production department. He then left Shaw Brothers Studio, citing creative differences, and co-founded Golden Harvest with Leonard Hu Kun Chung in 1970. He reinvented industry practice by partnering with independent studios, contradicting the studio system at Shaw Brothers. Chow's Golden Harvest was best known for discovering Lee, making him an international kung fu star and cultural icon who still is influential today. Their first film, The Big Boss from 1971, made Lee an instant legend, setting new box office records at the time. It was then followed by Fist of Fury in 1972 and The Way of the Dragon in 1972 as well. The subsequent Enter the Dragon in 1973 was a co-production with Warner Brothers, the first co-production between Hong Kong and Hollywood. Chan also found initial fame from filming... The Kung Fu Comedies Snake in the Eagle's Shadow, 1978, and Drunken Master, 1978 as well, produced by Golden Harvest. The picks became a new subgenre of Kung Fu movies. The article does go on for a bit longer. Again, that was Variety.com's Raymond Chow, giant of Hong Kong film industry, dies at 91. And my second R.I.P., Via NBCNews.com, Douglas Rain, the creepy voice of Hal in 2001, dies at 90. This here is written by Alex Johnson, and it says this. Douglas Rain, the acclaimed Shakespearean actor whose chilling performance as the voice of the homicidal HAL 9000 computer in 2001, A Space Odyssey, rendered the immoral emptiness of outer space and sound, died Sunday at the age of 90. 
The Stratford Festival, the Canadian theatre company of which Rain was a founding member in 1953, confirmed his death on Sunday night. A cause of death wasn't reported. Saying, quote, Today we lost Douglas Rain, a member of our founding company and a hugely esteemed presence on our stages for 32 seasons. He will be greatly missed. Our thoughts and prayers are with his family. End quote. The HAL 9000 computer was the sentient controller of life support systems, and although it wasn't revealed until later in the movie, the very mission of Discovery 1, the spacecraft that is sent to Jupiter to investigate a mysterious black obelisk in the landmark 1968 science fiction film directed by Stanley Kubrick and co-written by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Rain's sinuous, detached reading of Hal's lions made the computer's murders of three astronauts as they slept in suspended animation and its subsequent stranding of astronaut Frank Poole to die in open space all the more shocking. Hal's reasoning and explanation were cold, precise, and, at least in its mind, unavoidably logical. He had been given conflicting programming, ensure the succession of the mission at all costs while also protecting the lives of the crew. Hal concluded that the first command superseded the second. The article does go on from there for quite a bit more. Again, check it out via NBCNews.com. Douglas Rain, the creepy voice of Hal in 2001, dies at the age of 90. R.I.P. R.I.P. Now, quickly, I will jump into my final piece of news. I don't want it to be my final piece of news because there's a lot of good stuff here. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this little part of this little article here about the California wildfire and that it took down the Paramount Ranch, uh, the historic Paramount Ranch. And I'm just curious to hear what you, Matt, have to say about Shrek and Puss in Boots getting the rebooted treatment, and apparently the producers want the original voice cast back. So starting off with filmschoolrejects.com, the California wildfires took the Paramount Ranch and with it so much history. This here is written by Kieran Fisher, and it says this. This past weekend, brave firefighters and emergency service personnel in California were tasked with putting a stop to one of the most devastating wildfires in state history. As I write this piece, they are undergoing the agonizing task of scouring the wreckage for bodies. People have lost their loved ones and their homes. The last thing in the world people want to think about is, of course, movies. That said, the fire also destroyed an important piece of Hollywood history, the Paramount Ranch. The Santa Monica Mountains National Park Service revealed via their Twitter account that the fire had swept through the historic filming location and none of it escaped the flames. This effectively brings an end to a dynasty of film and television that has been around for close to a century. The ranch was conceived in 1927 when Paramount Pictures purchased 2,700 acres of the old Rancho Las Virginias for shooting movies. For over 90 years, some of Hollywood's finest have honed their craft there, and the landscape provided allowed them to create a diverse array of cinematic worlds. 
Colonial Massachusetts was brought to life in the Maid of Salem. Ancient China was recreated in the adventures of Marco Polo. The sign of the cross transported viewers to Emperor Nero's Rome. Death Race 2000 showed us a dystopian future. I could go on. Over the decades, the ranch has been a premier destination for shooting movies and shows based in a variety of time periods, featuring expansive outdoor backdrops and some stunning natural scenery. However, when most of us think of the ranch, the Old West comes to mind. The Western has captured Hollywood's imagination since as far back as the dawn of film, and the ranch's western town played a big part in bringing many of these tales of frontier adventure to life. If you've seen any western towns in movies or television shows throughout the years, it's likely they were shot in western town. Built in 1953 after wealthy Western fan William Hertz purchased the land, Western Town has posed as Arizona, Kansas, and just about any other state where cowboys roamed. Some of the best Old West movies and TV shows were filmed there, including Gunfight at the OK Corral, Gunsmoke, Rawhide, Bonanza, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, Deadwood, and Bone Tomahawk. Recently, HBO's Westworld used Western Town for the scenes set in Main Street. My personal favorite is The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., a pulpy sci-fi crossover yarn starring Bruce Campbell as a titular bounty hunter. The thought of future filmmakers not being able to add to this rich lineage is a gut punch. And it's heartbreaking to know that those beautiful memories of some of our favorite movies and shows are now a smoldering heap of ash. And the article does go on for quite a bit more. They go more in depth into what all was shot there and how it ties in with the National Park Service. Again, that was via filmschoolrejects.com. The California wildfires took the Paramount Ranch, and with it, so much history, written by Kieran Fisher. Matt, comments, questions, concerns regarding this, and do, do explain, do tell me your thoughts of Shrek and Puss in Boots receiving the reboot treatment. All right, I'm going to do these in order of importance. In, in terms of our dual RIPs, definitely very sad to hear that. Um, uh, mainly just because, as I always state, losing, for me, losing legends like these are losing parts of my childhood, parts of the reason why I love movies so much and all of the different kinds of movies that I love. So always a bummer to hear about those passings. Wildfire damaged for the, for the prop, for the Paramount property. Again. Oh my God. I, I, you know, it, in one, in one aspect, it's just stuff. And thank God that no one, no one died and that there was not human suffering and loss in direct, you know, in, in the direct aftermath of that. It is just stuff, but it's really important stuff. It's historical stuff and it's stuff that cannot be replaced and should always be preserved for as long as it can be and that is sad but silver lining we still have the movies made and we can go back and enjoy those and i hope 
find new reasons to explore those movies and find more reasons to talk to those crews and get even more richly delved into histories of things made, filmed, or done at the Paramount Backlot and the ranch. So I'm hoping that we can see more of that because I think that would be something amazing to come from that. And then finally, a Shrek reboot. First of all, fucking why? Why? DreamWorks, you're already, you know, like one foot in the fucking grave right now. Don't just have your friends push you the rest of the way in with a terrible fucking reboot. Secondly, it's not exactly a reboot if everybody from the first fucking movie is in it, okay? I mean, that's just, it's, that's not even a reboot. It's just a fucked up sequel. So, stop. Stop. What is it that Michael Scott says? No! No! God, no! 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 Yeah, that. Do that for like, just put that on repeat and then every time you think, huh, Shrek? Press play. Thank you. That is what I have to say in order of importance on those topics, sir. By that point, why don't you just make a fifth Shrek movie? I mean, just continue what you've already started. I mean, I, I mean, the, the first Shrek movie is still great. You don't need to remake it if that's what they're planning on doing. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Again, I'm I'm simply not sure. If if they're that desperate, clean up. You know, pick new pop songs that you want to pick on and just re-render it. There you go. Shrek remastered. (laughs) See what happens. I would even be okay with that. I would literally be okay with that because at least then you're honoring the original. You've brought it up to date. You're using new music so that the music isn't dated, you've got new graphics, so that your CGI isn't dated, and then you can just keep the same story and keep your same actors and actresses and be done. But they're not going to do that, because that would probably make sense. And it's the guy, Chris Melendandry, who's behind all the Despicable Me and Minion movies, is going to be behind this film. And just real quick, this this is a quote of his... Quote, when you look back on those vocal performances, as in Shrek, they're awesome, and while you certainly could make a case for a complete reinvention, I find myself responding to my own nostalgic feelings of wanting to go back to those characterizations. The challenge for us has been to find something that really does feel like it's not simply yet another film in a series of sequels, end all quotes. But if you're casting the same people, I mean, again, it's going to be Shrek 5. I mean, you can't re... I don't, whatever. It's not worth it. Agreed. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, that is going to be, that is the end of the news for you, sir. That was the last bit of your news. That is the end of my news. All right. Well, then, for next week, because for us here in the States, we have uh, Thanksgiving, or for people like Johnny, real Thanksgiving, um, and not practice Thanksgiving, as I call it, for you in Canada. We're going to be doing a double stuffed, overstuffed bonus segment where we're combining a did it age well with was it worthy. That's right. It's not just, just as everyone, everyone here in the United States overeats on Thanksgiving, we're going to overdo it with our bonus segment. 
So we're going to have a Did It Age Well for 1992's Scent of a Woman, as well as a Was It Worthy for Scent of a Woman, because uh, Al Pacino got his best actor for the 65th Academy Awards for his role in Scent of a Woman. So that's what we're going to be doing for next week. And without further ado, I believe it's time to get to the flick for the week. Is it not, sir? Let's get to it. Here we go, folks. It's... The movie we we Alright, and this week's movie, because neither Matt nor Tim could uh, could could find a way to get to the <laughs> It's a beautiful boy, like we were supposed to. <laughs> so uh we're we are our flick for the week, mid nineties. Get the fuck out of the front of my store. Fuck you! Fuck you. Yo, I'm out. Stay out of my fucking room, Stevie. It's getting like shit today, man. Look, hold on me. I'm moving. Stevie. <laughs> Hey, hey, y'all not supposed to be around here. Get the fuck out. Hey, the little nigga with you know, the Toys R Us badge, hey, come here. You can't say nigga, I don't think. Fucking Sheryl Crow looking motherfucker. <laughs> this is awesome. I've never been in a car without someone's mom or dad before. You're so cute. You're like at the age before guys become dicks. Oh, oh fuck. fuck. Yo, My what bad. the fuck? Oh, shit. You think you're pretty cool. Your ghetto ass friends. You good? Uh, you think you're tough and shit. You're just a little fucking kid. A lot of the time, we feel like our lives are the worst. But think if you looked in anybody else's closet, you wouldn't trade your shit for their shit. So let's go. That's why we ride a piece of wood and like what that does to somebody's spirit. A 2018 American coming of age dra- comedy drama film written and directed by Jonah Hill, which of course is you probably already know his feature directorial debut. Now, this here stars uh, Sonny Suljic, uh, Lucas Hedges, and Catherine Waterston, and follows 13 year old boy who begins to hang out with an older group of skateboarders while living in 1990s LA. Um, all right, so I don't really have a lot to say about this film. Except for, well done, Jonah. Well fucking done. You have crafted a movie that both understands the culture it's pulling from, and not just pop culture, but the culture it's pulling from, as well as the geographical time it's pulling from. And you've told a great, story that has a lot of realism as an underlying tone. I think the greatest strength of this movie is its use of nostalgia as a tool and not 
a gimmick. I think a lot of people looked at the trailer and were like, oh, wow, it really kind of has a look and feel of the 90s. But it's not about the look and the feel of the 90s. It's about the aesthetic value of the 90s because you can't really tell this kind of story anymore. You can certainly tell coming of age movies, uh, coming of age stories. You can certainly tell stories of that are coming of age with people who are of either a lower socioeconomic status or flat out, you know, like homeless or whatever. But the aesthetic value of the time period and the nostalgia being given can't be replicated today because the culture that it comes from is entirely different. And I think that's what Jonah, that's what Jonah Hill has really captured here. And I think it's what makes for such an entertaining film. The thing that holds it back though is that it is, it's, it's important story beats often feel cliched. It's almost like, it's almost like Jonah is trying is trying too hard to be subdued. He's not naturally giving us less. He's trying to give us less. I think because to a certain extent, rightly so, it's Jonah Hill. And so people aren't really sure, are we getting super bad Jonah Hill? Or are we getting Wolf of Wall Street Jonah Hill, right? There's... There's a growth in Jonah Hill that we see from this. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it was, I, I think you could argue a bit of a catch 22. Also, I think that the ending is a little cliched, which kind of holds it back somewhat. But this is a fantastic movie. I really, really like it. I think you will enjoy it too. And I don't, and, and it, I don't care what your age group is. I think it's a good case study for younger people to see what the nineties was like. And I think it's a proper nostalgic trip down memory lane for those who came up or can remember the nineties from this vantage point. Four out of five. Excellent, solid movie, wonderful first outing from Jonah Hill. And if this is the kind of dedication and product that we're going to get from him on outing number one, I can't wait to see what this guy does when he can, when he's really able to swing for the fences. So four stars and bring us home, Tim. This is another one of the movies that came out this year that I was looking forward to seeing. I like Jonah Hill mainly because. He's grown quite a bit as an actor, and I've been listening to a lot of like Terry Gross and other interviews with him where he saw himself as a director before becoming an actor. This is just something he's always wanted to do. And you can tell he's talented, and there is that passion there, but I, I, I don't think this is as great of a movie as what everybody is heralding it as. Now, does it work for some people in the, with a the nostalgic factor? Probably so. I didn't skateboard. I didn't have friends like these people. I didn't go through at all anything that this kid was really going through. I didn't. I was the older brother to a sister. She got the attention. I didn't. And it, it was just like the dynamics were different. Therefore, I just didn't really have anything in common with these characters on strictly a base level. 
when it comes down to the meat and bones of the story, like what this movie is trying to say, in a way, it's the importance of friendship, the importance for kids like this to have an outlet when they're in certain uh, uh, you know home situations. Like sometimes they need it, they need that outlet. For these kids, it was uh, skateboarding. But at the same time, these weren't the greatest kids. They're little, they're punks, they're, they're assholes, and you never really got the idea that maybe they came to a realization at the end. You know what I mean? And I didn't think that happened, or I didn't get any of that, because the movie just ends. It ends with another nostalgic kick, you know, by watching the video within the movie, you know, of what the character of fourth grade is filming, all the trick shots and all that stuff. You know, and I get it. Back in the 90s, People loved the Big Brother magazines. You know, they loved all the pre-Jackass stuff. I wasn't into it. I didn't find entertainment value from it. I was just kind of disgusted by some of that crap, even whenever I was a kid. And I was this kid's age the year that, it you know, it's supposed to take place, 10, 11, 12. You know, I mean, I kind of knew kids like this. But not really. Therefore, there was just kind of this disconnect that I really just didn't jive with what this movie was, I guess, trying to get across. And because I didn't see or I didn't experience really any growth from these characters other than kind of the main kid. And there's a nice little moment at the end between the kid and, and his brother but that's just not enough. I mean, you need more than like these little, little tiny, tiny, tiny moments. I love little moments, but there has to be something behind those moments. Now, again, it's a good movie. I mean, he did a good job. I really liked, it has a cool aesthetic look to it. The basic idea of the characters are incredibly fascinating. It was just a shame that not a whole lot was done with them by the end of the film. So I am giving Mid-90s a 3 out of 5. Again, it's a good film. I don't think it's as good and not nearly as perfect as what everybody or so many other critics are heralding it as. Fair enough. Um, and I think maybe, I don't know, I I was into skateboarding uh, late 80s. I was going to ask if you were or not. Yeah. I, I was, and I had a lot of friends who were into this culture, uh, into this subculture, even into the 90s. I was a big, very big into the grunge movement and everything, which I know is not necessarily part of this movie, but still kind of fed into that as well. And so for me, it was really interesting because I thought it was very realistic. Um, and I don't mean to try and equate realism with realistic, especially because they have different connotations in literature versus film versus, but I think that, um, if you look at realism as being observable detail and experiences of the norm, I do, which is more literature side than the film side, I think that you can see that in this film so at any rate oh, I, I agree a hundred percent now when it comes to portraying actual people a hundred percent agree but yeah he did a great job creating these characters these real characters he just didn't really do enough with them you know no and that's and that's and again that's fair like i said because i think that the i think where he's shining as a director it's actually accentuating the issues with the screenplay uh, with, with the script so, sure. um, there, there's again a lot of 
I mean, there are some technical issues in that script, and I was not happy with the ending. Um, I felt, I simply felt it was too cliched. Not that it was necessarily a happy ending or an obviously happy ending or an obviously sad ending or what have you, but it just for me felt like it should have should have led up into something more. I think so. You know, whatever. All right. Well, good. You know, hey, at least we're getting passing grades over here, right? So next week's movies, uh, hopefully we'll get to see them all this time. Are <laughs> gonna be Overlord, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and Widows. So, um, I think that's it, right? It's time for the spiel, sir. Spiel on. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's it's a a cut it's Chomp don't want to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check, check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. That's for us. We are, of course, the SLS Cast. And you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at NitWit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information super when track on too much Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down in the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, we would love to have you do that. Head on over to Patreon.com and please look us up there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Catherine Waterston, I get to say this. I find life so shocking in general. Everything about it surprises me. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.